Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Morning, Mo. Hello. Cheers. Morning. I know you've had a very, very busy week uh, in a new role at McMaster, and and uh, you probably do need a couple of cups of uh, Joe before you get going today. But I appreciate your willingness to fit this into your busy schedule to oh. to, to chat this week on another uh, topic in Ortho Joe. So uh, we're we're returning to our format of just finding something of interest in a recent uh, issue of one of our publications. And so I've got ours. Uh, and the lead article is uh, one on a topic that has been of great interest uh, to me. Uh, and I know uh, you uh, more recently, and that is uh, the issue of unipolar versus bipolar in displaced femoral neck fractures in elderly individuals. And this is a uh, study from the Australian National Joint Replacement Registry, a very large study, 62,875 patients with femoral neck fractures that were treated with primary modular unipolar or bipolar. And uh, the outcome of interest was uh, revision. And uh, this has been a topic that's, uh, boy, it's been around since I entered orthopedics. I I, I recall in the, my early days, we were still putting in Thompson prostheses. And then there came this uh, new concept from Bateman, who I believe was a Toronto surgeon who developed the bipolar articulation with the thought that if you had a secondary articulation between a smaller head and a mobile, uh, more larger head, that you would decrease acetabular wear. And we've had, boy, probably hundreds of publications looking at revision rate with these two approaches, questions of do the secondary articulation actually move? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So this study, uh, in a very large number of subjects, showed that in the first two and a half years, there's no difference in the revision. But after that, the uh, hazard ratio goes up to 1.86 uh, in favor of a, a higher risk of revision for the monopolar versus the bipolar. Uh, and there are some other findings which are of interest in this. And so th this is a topic that's of high relevance, uh, given the fact that you and and Dr. Tom Einhorn have recently published the health trial, which uh, compared total hip to uh, hemiarthroplasty in displaced femoral neck fractures. And uh, I'm sure there was both monopolar and bipolars in that group. So what, what, what can you tell us from that uh, large RCT? Yeah, you know, and um, it goes back to the, a couple of big lessons we learned from that. The first one was when we were deciding um, total versus hemi, there was a lot of debate, a lot of expert opinion debate at that time. This is now well over 10 years ago about, well, what's considered a appropriate hemiarthroplasty in the treatment of patients with femoral neck fractures, displaced femoral neck fractures. Well, at that time, there was a consensus for the most part that a bipolar and a modular unipolar would generally be equivalent. So we just grouped them together as the hemiarthroplasty. What we didn't do was uh, allow the monoblock hemi, so the Thompsons and the Moors, they weren't going to get in. But there was a real belief that there was no difference. And in fact, when we looked overall, just looking at, you know, in the first two years, there didn't appear to be a difference, even though we didn't, you know, we weren't doing a tested randomized trial against 
the type of hemi, the first couple of years, we didn't see a big difference. In fact, the first couple of years, we didn't see a difference between total and hemi. But overall, we started seeing a trend. We started seeing that that the advantage of a total hip replacement really starts happening beyond, it seems, the two-year mark, where we start seeing the revisions associated more so with the hemiarthroplasty. And you're right, the acetabular component side of things were, uh, were, were more concerning. The acetabular side was more concerning with the hemi, and we started seeing more revisions in that area. But it gets to that bottom line point. Our trial was maybe, you know, just under 1,500 patients or so. Um, nowhere near the you know tens and tens of thousands of patients in these larger registries, uh, and our challenge always is we don't have randomized trials that you know at least you know follow patients for you know decades, let alone uh, you know a couple of years. So those are going to always be the push and pull of trying to understand evidence when we're trying to understand hip fractures. Well, the the real issue in following this group uh, is that the age of the patients that are are have the condition of question, right? I mean, in this. Uh, registry trial that the the mean age was uh, 80 80 and 81 in the two groups oh, so yeah right and the same it's thing it's not going right? to have even, 10 year follow up right oh for sure and the same thing happened in the health trial health trial we you know our population was allowing patients you know uh, 55 and older with a you know with a uh, what we're calling a fragility fracture or low energy fracture the average age of patients enrolled in the study were mid 70s you know, so the reality is, is one can argue, well, it, is this truly generalizable to the younger patient in the 60s, for example, with a femoral neck fracture? We don't know. But yeah. these trials are typically further on. And you can also make the argument too, Mark, that the following, that even if it suggests that bipolar is better than that, you know, modular unipolar, there is a cost associated with a bipolar. Sure. In an 88-year-old individual, and you're uh, with potentially a two-year life expectancy or, or less than a five-year life expectancy, one could argue. You might just say, in this case, we know the evidence suggests there's no difference, and maybe the the alternative here makes sense to use a modular unipolar, even though this study would suggest, hey, bipolar has a you know better, uh, longer-term right. you know, longer revision risk. It may not make sense in the individual case. Right. Yeah, well, that's what we're always doing as surgeons, right? We're, we're taking the evidence as it exists today and applying it to an individual patient and family and making those kinds of judgments uh, because we'll never have the perfect trial uh, for anything that's going to answer all questions. As a matter of fact, somebody might ask you, why didn't you in the health trial uh, include other arms, uh, meaning the bipolar versus the monopolar? Why didn't you do that? And it gets to the whole issue of practicality, right? With yep. what, what we have to do to be able to get the numbers to answer questions. That's exactly right. And, you know, some of it is just the pragmatics of funding a multinational trial, which is expensive. And the second one was, you know, um, there was generally a belief at that time that the hemiarthroplasties, modular unipolar, bipolar were functionally the same. So, you know, there was just, you know, not, th not the insight. So when you get these large data sets that help you, um, you know, it, it does it does make a big difference. The one thing that I know Dr. Harris has been doing and talking to is these large platform projects where you can collect lots of data as you can here. But he's also been speaking quite openly about building in nested randomized trials within the context of a registry or within the context of, of some of these larger databases. And you can argue if you're already collecting the information and you have an easy way to get the outcome, which is revision, if it's being collected, let's say nationwide, you right. can imagine that randomizing, um, you know, could be much easier because you know the hardest part of, of the trial is to get the patients to be followed and get, you know, 
reliable outcome data. Right. You can see how that could work really nicely. Um, and we saw that a lot in COVID, right? We saw lots of platform programs come out where they weren't looking at a single study, but multiple studies, multiple different questions on the same platform. Right. Well, I know that ortho, ortho evidence has really done a great job with following following the, the, the evidence uh, in yeah. treating COVID. So what can you what can you learn? Uh, what can we learn from from what what has been out there as far as the way the international community has approached this pandemic uh, in terms of data sharing uh, and uh, uh, developing novel ways of assessing the influence of various vaccine approaches, et cetera? Yeah, and I think it goes it goes back to the, to the the pressure points. We like we learned more than any other time in history, at least recent history, that we can actually conduct very large studies and get answers relatively quickly when there is a full concerted global effort to answer a particular problem. So, when someone says we are going to put lots of resource to determine which of the fifteen different potential treatments work for COVID nineteen it became relatively, relatively easier to say we, we no longer have a barrier to getting trials up and running. Financial barriers are gone because governments and other groups are funding this work. Everyone in multiple countries is now invested in getting this information. And by the way, it's their number one priority. So it's happening really quickly. We would have never seen the number of trials. There were like 600 trials in first phase, March 2020, Mark that were being run. And a lot of them were platforms where one group was saying, for example, in Oxford, for example, they were running a platform, which was the, the solidarity trial is a platform trial, which was multiple different programs all being on the same and the same groups are testing and testing it through a you know pragmatic design and a rapid design and a, you know, uh, moving things forward very quickly. So that kind of mindset, I think, would be ideal um, for a non-COVID environment as well. So, so just uh, capitalizing on using the same data platforms and the same way of, of posting data and collecting data uh, in, in an organized manner uh, with cooperation between multiple centers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, and, and the truth is that it still costs real money and it costs real time and real coordination. So it's not like this, that it's some sort of easy alternative. It's a really hard alternative to do, but it's, it's one that makes sense. The other thing we should be doing a lot more of is having data at our fingertips. So for example, you know, we should never have to spend time looking backwards when there's a crisis or a new problem. We should have a repository. We, in, 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 let's say medicine, we often look at, let's say Cochrane, you know, the Cochrane reviews have been putting things together. But the truth of the matter is the Cochrane reviews are still representative of a single paper and a single outcome. So you still have to search papers. There has to be a way to get data. Yeah, yeah. we gotta get data into a system that allows us to, out of, you know, snap of a button, be able to pull information out so you can drive trials going forward, right? That's what I think where, um, you know, I see you know, the future going. And I think many ways, these large data collection uh, groups and platforms are thinking the same thing. Yeah, well, that's one of the goals of the collaboration between ortho evidence and JVGS is ultimately we'd like to get there someday in our professional. Absolutely. Life. Well, I mean, if, if you think about where we're going and, we're, you know, we are diverting a little off of hip fractures, but we are in a digital age. Right. And so when we talk about digital content, digital content is is gold. And um, but just having digital content is not helpful if you can't find a way to get, you know, meanings from data. 
And I think in many ways, you know, what we're seeing in these larger, larger data sets is as it's easier in one way because things are precise, but it's also dangerous in another way because it's precise. And precision doesn't mean it's accurate. It just means that you have such narrow confidence intervals that you can start believing all kinds of things now show up. Right. How do you make sense of which one's right and which was wrong? The challenge with the fundamental challenge with a registry will always be there in that mm -hmm. patients are getting allocated treatments based on preferences of a patient or preferences of a surgeon. Mm -hmm. And yeah. trying to balance that never, never, never after the fact with yeah. statistical analysis can never make up for the primary attempt at trying to randomize. And that's always going to be the push and pull of these sort of programs. Right. Well, there are some uh, many other valuable things in this uh, manuscript that support um, clinical decision making. The one that stood out to me was the fact that the use of cemented fixation really did decrease the risk of revision, regardless of uh, which uh, head was used. Um, and that supports what other clinical trials ha have uh, found. Um, but in the end, um, the decision making around revision is subject to clinician bias in a registry format. And I think all of us would have a lower threshold to revise if a patient had a monopolar versus a bipolar. Uh, sure. It's just, uh, that's that's the way we roll as uh, surgeons. But I, I think the, the future of uh, answering questions like this to a much greater degree of precision lies in the development of these international networks with yeah. platforms that we can share uh, and run multiple trials uh, off that. And, since uh, I'm so much older than you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be watching in my retirement as you develop those platforms uh, and uh, answer these uh, questions. So I'm going to look forward to it. Um, and maybe well, it's very kind. Of, it's very kind of you to say, but I think I've already got people, you know, way, way already ready to do it because I, I don't feel that young these days. You know, <laughs> this is my third cup, you know, before, uh, in the morning. So it's taking me more and more fuel to get started. But anyways, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, it's good. Well, great to chat with you again, uh, Mo, and uh, we look forward to the next discussion. And I think uh, next time it's uh, it's your topic. So oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna find some real good stuff. I'm gonna okay. find some real good stuff. Yeah. Cheers. Awesome. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Cheers.